1955, the marching band of Lewiston High School was 75 students strong, not including the eight majorettes who led every formation in their dazzling white skirts, tall boots, and high hats adorned with fluttering white plumes. With confidence born of daily rehearsal, the young musicians stepped lively, their heavy blue gabardine jackets snugly belted and sashed in white. In a tightly synchronized pattern, the group moved as one with near military precision across the field at halftime against their rivals, Auburn's Edward Little High School. On Memorial Day, they paraded past the storefronts on Lisbon Street, playing classic marches by John Philip Sousa and famed Maine composer R.B. Hall, whose Veni Vidi Vici was a crowd favorite. Lewiston was booming in 1955. Set along the Androscoggin River, the city was the industrial heart of Maine, producing textiles, leather goods, cigars, brooms, and automobile bodies in its great brick mills. A cluster of five-story industrial buildings lined the riverbank below the dam, and the tiny panes of their mullioned windows flashed in the sun. After a century of steady growth, the city was now the state's second largest, boasting 15 churches, two hospitals, two colleges, and a populace that drew from 20 nationalities. Overwhelmingly, however, the city was made up of working-class French Canadians who had begun arriving in the 1850s. More than 100 years later, many in the community still spoke French. Le Messager, Lewiston's French-language daily newspaper, was celebrating its 75th year of publication, and the public library kept more than 7,000 French titles in circulation. The Basilica of Saints Peter and Paul, Maine's largest Catholic church, continued to bring in its priests from Quebec. What brought the town together were the values of industry, patriotism, and civic pride. The Lewiston Band Boosters, the group of mothers charged with fundraising for the grammar school and high school bands, felt this deeply. They intended to support all music students, regardless of their ability to pay for instruments, uniforms, and travel to the state competition. In a working-class town, the need was great. And so the Lewiston Band Boosters made a cookbook. Welcome to Cooking is Community, the community cookbook podcast. I'm Mrs. Carl Schatz, a.k.a. Margaret Hathaway, food writer, goat farmer, and mom of three. I'm Don Lindgren, antiquarian book dealer and food historian. And I'm Carl Schatz, photographer, goat farmer, and journalist. Community cookbooks open a fascinating window on 150 years of American food, culture, and home life. And so we started this podcast to share our love for them and for the communities that put them together. On today's pod, we're talking about the Lewiston Band Booster Club cookbook, compiled in 1955 by members of the Band Booster Club of Lewiston, Maine. This cookbook has some really cool features. All the recipes, artwork, and even the ads were all done by hand, and we know by whose hand as well. We'll talk to Kobe Cohen, who was a senior at Lewiston High School in 1955, played saxophone in the band, and was the chairman of the Student Advertising Committee for the cookbook. And for today's recipe segment, I boiled a tongue. Stay tuned. Don, do you want to describe the book? The book is a sort of classic 1950s American community cookbook. It has a 
comb binding, and I think a lot of people call these spiral bindings, and spiral is a slightly different thing. But when you see a plastic binding with usually colorful plastic, and it's got sort of teeth that hold the pages together, that's probably a type of comb binding. So this is a sort of medium blue comb binding, and the printing throughout is in the same color. It's a kind of medium blue. Um, and the book is organized into regular sections with appetizers and soups and seafood and vegetables. And there's some handy hints at the back and some other stuff. And most interestingly to me, there's a section in the beginning of a couple of photographs. Yeah. Blue and white, I believe, are the Lewiston High School colors. So I'm sure that's why it's a blue comb binding and, and probably blue uh, print as well. Those photos are really cool. And, you know, Don, you said something in the last episode about what it is that you really love about community cookbooks. And you said something about each book is kind of a puzzle there to be figured out. And I really felt that with this book. I did a lot of puzzling I'm excited to talk about. And one of those things was these two photos that are in the beginning of the book of the band. The pages are gatefolds. And I didn't even recognize that we had the photographs in the book until I sat down and took a really close look at it. I've had this book for several years and never knew that these photographs of the bands were there because the pages were folded in on top of themselves. And in the version that you loaned to us, there's actually only one photograph. There are two pictures. One is the high school band and one is the middle school band. One band is clearly is larger than the other, has more instruments and lots of rows of people standing on yeah. more steps. And Yeah, I think that's, that's the high school band. Don, are you playing the snare drum? No, that sound in the background is rain falling on my air conditioner. We thought you were really getting into the spirit of this book. For <laughs> I am, but not, <laughs> yeah. not, not that way. That's just heavy rain yeah. right now. Wow, let it come here and water in our garden. We need it. Yeah. Yeah. In the version of the book that you loaned us, there's actually only one of the two photographs. And when I was doing some research on the book, I found another copy of the book for sale on an eBay site. In some of the pictures they had shown, there was a picture of another band picture, which wasn't in the book. And I got really excited thinking that I had found a different version with a different band picture. And I, I think I called you, I, I put you on like speed dial, Don, and I called you all excited that I thought I had discovered another version of the book. But look what you've done to us, Don. I know. But, <laughs> but really what I discovered was that the second photo had fallen out of this copy. I think that's most likely. Yeah. What I think is really, really great is that we have this exact same sort of photo framed in a, a large format of Carl's dad from the Portland middle school band from 1955. And it's huge. I imagine that was a pretty expensive thing to buy. But if you put it in the cookbook, you can buy one for each set of grandparents and get everyone, <laughs> get everyone. It's like, what a great, attractive way to get people to buy the book. Well, I think also if the book is to raise money for the band and by putting in the pictures of the kids in the band, people get to see what they're raising money for. I also figure they probably took these photographs for the high school yearbook. So having the photograph taken to begin with is something that's already paid for, and they're just reproducing the photo. So I do want to let people know that if you want to see these photographs of the Lewiston High School Band from 1955 and the Lewiston Middle School Band from 1955, they're on our Instagram feed at 
Community Cookbook Podcast or on Facebook at Community Cookbook Podcast, and our website is communitycookbook.com. I also have a photograph we're going to add to it just to show you that this had become a popular idea for raising money for high schools and other types of schools. Another cookbook, the Deering High School Marching Band, produced another fundraiser at roughly the same time. And other types of public school clubs were doing these as well. There was one that was done by the South Portland High School Track Boosters Club. So it started as largely associated with women's civic associations and churches. One of the places that it it moved into and became an effective fundraiser was into the school environment. One of the things that we're now seeing in this cookbook, which is something that I think we're accustomed to thinking about when we think about the community cookbooks, are all the names. In the first two books that we looked at, the recipes weren't really attributed. But now, not only are all the recipes attributed, but in that front matter, we also see who put the book together. We see the planning committee and the chairman of the planning committee. And for this book, because it's all hand-printed, there's a list of, of all the people who did all the hand-printing, the cover design and illustrations. I just wanted to address that hand printing aspect of things. What I think happened is that the recipes were submitted in lots of different forms and lots of types of handwriting, and maybe some of them were typed. But somebody had to make the, the handwriting on the pages more uniform because this book wasn't typeset using a, a formal font, but is basically a lithographic reproduction of somebody's handwriting. And I think that's what these... Uh, people who are labeled as hand printers are doing. It's not Mimeo or Ditto, but it's a related type of printing. And that's why we also see that the the design aspects, the advertising, the little sort of vignettes and doodles. That, yeah, there's a lot of illustrations. Yeah, all of those illustrations are done by hand with it, what would be called in the text. Not to get too like geeky about the construction of the book, Don, but... In the copy that we have, there are some pages that are stuck together. So we'll have like page, you know, 162, 163 in there twice. They're repeated and it's clearly accidental. But how would this book, would this book have been put together by a team of students or would this go to a binder? Like in at this time frame with, with the comb binding, how was this actually put together? Well, there are a lot of alternatives for exactly how this would have been assembled, or let's say by whom this would have been assembled at this time. Some mm-hmm. books of this sort, starting in the 1930s and 40s, would would basically be jobbed out to these big specialized printers, mostly in the Midwest, uh, in Kansas and Missouri and places like that, where they were specializing in making these kinds of fundraising books for churches and other organizations. But sometimes these books would be done locally. This book doesn't have any information in it about it being printed elsewhere, so I'm going to Mm -hmm. assume that this was done locally. This type of printing would have been available to them locally. They're probably being printed on 8.5 by 11 sheets of paper, like a standard uh, size sheet of typing paper which means you'd get four pages, two on each side, and then they'd have to be cut in half, stacked in the proper order, and then there's a special piece of equipment that cuts the little square holes down the left-hand side and somebody would be inserting the binding. Now, this is why I think it's much more likely that you'll see extra pages or duplicate pages, which that would happen Mm -hmm. much more frequently than you'd see a missing page because there'd be Mm. stacks on a table of the books as they're getting assembled, as the pages are being built up, you know. 
And mm -hmm. it's much more likely someone is going to put an extra copy of a single group of four pages, then they're going to miss one. So right now I'm, I'm thinking about when they got to the bottom of those piles and that there are some piles that still have pages in them <laughs> and, and some piles that they ran out of pages because they accidentally put a couple in it. And just thinking of that drives me crazy. Oh, absolutely. And, the, and you know that there somewhere there was a box. I'm not saying it still exists, but somewhere there was yeah. a box that had, you know, 14 copies each one was incomplete and a handful right. of uh, extra blue all the extra pages blue comb yeah. binders yeah. <laughs> right. wow if we were the ones putting this book together those would still be in our attic yeah. we would we'd have that still all those extra pages oh that's too funny so uh, mrs carl schatz do you want to uh address the attributions in this cookbook well so most of the people are listed as mrs and then male name after it so yeah. they're they're so listed the, the, by their husband's name yeah so the but, planning committee chairman was mrs yeah. leonard moore yeah aided by mrs jack berman mrs wallace hart mrs oh there's a shirley mrs shirley webster mrs william cohen oh mrs william cohen whose son we will be talking to right yes yes but so some of them are people listed by Mrs. Shirley, or yeah. there are some where there's no no Mrs. or Miss. It's just a female name like Dorothy Ford. I think those might be students. I think because the advertising committee, everyone's just listed by full first names, and we know those are students. And I know mm. that Helene Cloutier was a student in the hand printers. But then there are a couple recipes attributed to men too in here. The Maestro Salad by Ted Armstrong, who I assume must be the band leader, right? If they oh, are referring maybe. to it as the the Maestro Salad, and at the at the end you add the croutons and serve a company with suitable music. Oh, um, we should have made that. Yeah. Well. I don't no. know. <laughs> <laughs> Just to honor the maestro. Just to honor the maestro. But yeah. there's also a seafood salad. Mrs. Leonard Moore has contributed quite a bit. But then there's a seafood salad from just Leonard Moore, which either someone forgot to write the Mrs. or Mr. Leonard Moore can open cans on his own because it's yeah. just three different cans of seafood mixed with mayonnaise and celery. <laughs> um <laughs> But it's, you know, it's the time, right? I mean, that's yeah. the time was when my grandmother would have been Mrs. Roger Buckholtz instead of Charlotte. So I do not generally refer to myself as Mrs. Carl Schatz, though. No, I think this is the <laughs> first and only time those that will ever cross your lips, I imagine. Yeah, you, you could say you're, you know, Mr. Margaret Hathaway. I'll work on that. <laughs> I think it's an interesting question of how they came to make this choice, because this is a high school cookbook. So the people in this group come from all different parts of the community of Lewiston. They come from different congregations. They have different ethnic backgrounds. They have different class levels or economic levels with, within the Lewiston community. And some of the congregations they come from would be progressive and others might be very conservative. So I actually think that by the 50s, I wouldn't expect to see the Mrs. Carl Schatz version all the time. I think, I think it's a choice, and you see it go one way or the other. But they had to have this conversation because this is a, such a big group. This wasn't like they automatically feel they have to do the one version or the other because of who they are. I mean, there were, there were people having these discussions starting in, well, you know, with suffrage 
So we were already four or five decades into discussions of whether there should be this kind of name use or not. And I think the fact that the community of the book is the high school and it's all the connected people, in particular the band, but the high school, it's a different kind of community. And I think that adds a lot of interesting things to this book. As I was trying to find someone to interview for the podcast, I saw the name Cohen, which is a traditional Jewish last name. And so I reached out to my dad to find out if he knew of any Cohens in Lewiston, Auburn. And talking to a cousin who said, oh, I have that Lewiston cookbook. And what it turned out, the cookbook that he had is actually not the Lewiston band cookbook, but the community cookbook produced by the synagogue in Lewiston, Beth Jacob, right at the same time. So the Temple Beth Jacob cookbook was produced in 1953. This cookbook was produced in 1955. Mrs. William Cohen, who is listed on the planning committee of the Band Booster cookbook, was also on the planning committee of the Temple Beth Jacob cookbook. There are three women that I was able to identify as contributing to both of these cookbooks at the same time and looking at the different recipes that appeared in one cookbook the Beth Jacob cookbook, and they were contributing those same recipes or very similar ones with some small changes to the Band Booster cookbook, even though they weren't attributed to them in the earlier cookbook. I think it's an interesting point, and you don't get to see that that often. You don't get to see that sort of horizontal transmission of recipes. How many names were in common between the two? Yeah, so I found three names, Mrs. William Cohen, whose first name is Marion. We were able to learn that from Kobe, but also by looking at the Beth Jacob cookbook, because in the Beth Jacob cookbook, they actually use the women's first names. It is interesting to see the recipes that they submitted to the band book are not particularly what I would think of as Jewish recipes. One recipe that Marion Cohen did contribute, which is a tongue with raisin sauce, is something that I remember my grandmother making when I was growing up. That I, I think of as kind of a Jewish recipe. But in the Beth Jacob cookbook, there are all the recipes you would sort of imagine being in a Jewish cookbook. There's, you know, matzo balls and knishes and kugels and things like that. And those aren't the recipes that these three women contributed to the band book. It's things like vegetable soup and Italian spaghetti and meatballs and mushroom souffle and Italian meat sauce. So it's, it's, it's a little funny that the Jewish members of the Band Booster Club are, are submitting Italian recipes to the, to the cookbook, but that they did. Well, when you're looking at historical recipes, whether they're 70 years old like these or 370-year-old recipes, it's important to recognize that people were recording the recipes and sharing the recipes for different reasons than we expect them to. Sometimes it's the same reason, but there are, are sort of ebbs and flows with communities regarding how much they want to represent their food traditions or how much they want to represent sort of their new place in a different society or in a different community. I think the other interesting thing, Marion Cohen contributed a recipe for baked veal chops to the band book. And I found that same recipe in the Beth Jacob cookbook attributed to someone else. And in the Beth Jacob recipe, the veal chops are cooked using schmaltz, 
which is uh, chicken fat, which is a very common fat that would be used in, in Jewish cooking. But in the version that appears in the band book, it was adjusted to be made with spry, which I didn't know what that was, but I looked it up and it was a Crisco-like cooking oil. But that was the only ingredient that was changed was from schmaltz to spry for the Lewiston band book version. And that's something you see in this book that I, I find interesting. We noticed in some of the earlier community cookbooks, the beginnings, or the, the presence of, of a very small number of national products. You know, and those tended to be things like flour and baking soda, very simple, mostly dry goods. And this book contains a, a fair number of new categories of national products. Spry is in there, Ritz Cracker shows up, and there are mm. about well, there are quite a few appearances of Foss Vanilla, which was, of course, is the Schlatterbeck and Foss company that's still based in Portland, as far as I know. Yeah, so a main brand. Main brand. Well, and, and I noticed that in the ads, the Foss ad was the only ad that wasn't just uh, handwritten. It actually had some graphics that came from Foss, which, I don't know, maybe they were a big sponsor. Oh, I think that that was, I think that's a good catch that that's what happened there. It's a pretty good indication that they said, no, no, we have a standard format. We'd like to use it. <laughs> yeah. <If> it <laughs> we, don't need, we don't need you drawing, yeah. hand drawing our logo. Thank you very much. It's a complex logo. There's a lot of information in their logo too. It'd be hard, yeah. hard to, or in their, in their page advertising that they took out, it would be hard to hand draw all of it and have it legible. Yeah. But I find those hand drawn advertisings really charming. I, I've seen them in lots of formats in this sort of photolithography format and in Mimeo and Ditto, they were using a, a model of somebody's logo and then doing it by hand. I, I think that's really cool. I think my favorite of the ads is the the radio station, the WCOUAMFM with the uh, lightning bolts. That's a, I think that's a cool, nicely and, hand-drawn. Well, and it's right below Sam's Italian Sandwiches, which is still in business yeah, in Lewiston. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, and the WCOU book is interesting because I have a WCOU community cookbook, which oh, they wow. did probably in the early 60s. And I, I know it followed this book chronologically. So maybe they got the chance to see that it was actually a pretty effective fundraiser and they thought they could use it themselves. The The other thing that's cool when, when we start to think beyond the localness of a community is that these radio station and later television station and sometimes often also periodical like magazine community cookbooks are a different sort of definition of what a community is for a radio station it's all the people that listen to you in the radius of your signal you know have however far your signal goes that's your community and and it's it's neat that this new technological advance would suddenly like create a whole new definition of what community might be and uh, there it is in the ads Maybe we can do that on a future episode, the WCOU Community Cookbook. I'd like that. There's another section at the end of the book that I, I think is noteworthy, and it's a section called Have You Heard? And it's basically... Oh, yeah. I loved the, I loved the illustration, too. Yeah. And, like, and, the, and, and the idea that, that, that people would be passing this type of, type of information along as kind of gossip on the telephone... <laughs> and, you know, and, and the information is stuff like when zippers fail to open and close and what you could do with an old felt hat, you know, the, so, but, and you think about like what people are doing on their phones now, it's, it's, this is very quaint. 
Well, and this is very similar to the miscellaneous section that we saw in Fish, Flesh, and Fowl. And I think there were these kinds of instructions in the Orno cookbook, too, mm-hmm. where it's sort of those helpful hints for the home. Yeah, this is a classic part of, of the historical cookbook going back hundreds and hundreds of years, that, that household recipes, also occasionally veterinary recipes, medical recipes, and other sorts of useful things, would be in the book along with the culinary recipes. So yeah. that's what we're seeing. You know, this part isn't a puzzle, but one of the things that makes this book neat to me is that it, it's kind of got one foot in the old world and one foot in the new both in the way the recipes are are done and the types of ingredients we see and the way they put them together, but also in sections like, have you heard? These sorts of household tips don't last very much longer inside of a cookbook. You don't see it too much after the 1950s. And, and they're tied to the time, too, because it's no longer cures for uh, what, it, what was Cures the, for chillblains. For chillblains, right. Yeah. But it's, uh, you know... <laughs> Gluing a paper plate to the bottom of that paint can to... Get rid of the messy newspapers. Which means that there are paper plates and paint cans, you know. It's, right. it's yeah. things that are connected more to nail polish, you know, things like that, that are connected to when this cookbook was actually was produced. My absolute favorite of these helpful hints is if dogs prowl across your seed beds, stamp a few mothballs into the ground around your favorite flower beds it it conjures so much that might violate organic standards i'm not sure i'm pretty sure it does so one of the things that i think is great about this household section is that it really provides a sort of foil to the recipes and you know within the culinary recipes we see all of these sort of shortcuts there's all sorts of stuff that's being used that's in a can and you're just sort of reheating a lot of it. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of stuff that's just barely cooking in here. You know, you're sort of assembling <laughs> things, a lot of double boiler stuff. So there is a tremendous amount of sort of ease that's being introduced, quick stuff, ingredients that are all ready to go, not a lot of process. And we assume that there's a, a lack of sort of depth of knowledge, you know, that people have kind of lost something. And I think they do lose things when they take the easy path. But then you look in the rear here, and it talks about how if you use a silver knife when you slice your bananas, they won't turn dark. That's a kind of like specific type of information that we really have uh, largely lost. And there's just like tons mm. of little things in this section that are really kind of like useful old-timey knowledge that gets passed from person to person, or it disappears. And then here it is being recorded. Yeah. So, so one other thing in the sections that I thought was interesting is that there's still that huge section for quantity cooking for yeah. 50 to 100 people. And it's a big section in here. I mean, there's quite a few recipes from punch to Welsh rabbit to just sort of general how to make a huge dinner for, for that many people. And clearly it's like fundraising people who, you know, maybe make the band dinner at the mm. end of the year. I don't know. As a an involved parent, having put together dinners for, for a school, this would have been very useful information to have, where it's all spelled out how much coffee you need, how many pickles, how many pies. It's actually a really great crib sheet for that sort of thing. Yeah. The Congregation Beth Jacob cookbook also has a quantity cooking section at the end of it. And uh, the very, very last recipe in the book, I think, is my favorite, which was 
uh, roast turkey for 125 people. And the first ingredient is you start with six 23-pound turkeys. So that's if you want to make if you want to make no roast no turkey less. for yeah if you want to make roast turkey for 125 people you need six 23 pound turkeys. Well, speaking of the Beth Jacob cookbook, I think this is a great time to introduce our special guest today, who is Kobe Cohen, who was a senior at Lewiston High School in 1955 and was in the band. He played saxophone. And when we come back, we'll hear from Kobe and and what it was like at Lewiston High School in 1955. So stay tuned. Kobe Cohen was a senior at Lewiston High School in 1955 and played saxophone in the band. He went on to Bowdoin College and then Boston University, where he got a law degree. In college, he was a soloist in the Glee Club and toured Europe and even performed in a USO show. He returned to Maine and served as an assistant attorney general for five years. He left Maine to pursue an acting career in New York, eventually relocating to California to practice law and then to Oklahoma City, where he lives today. Welcome, Kobe Cohen. I remember that our meeting came about because you were interested in cookbooks. Well, so this that's what this podcast is about. We're doing a podcast about community cookbooks. And the specific cookbook that we're talking about in this episode of the podcast is the Lewiston Band Booster cookbooks. In 1955, yeah. the Lewiston Band Boosters put together a community cookbook. And your mom, Marion Cohen, was on the yeah. planning committee. I remember her. Yeah, you remember her. Yeah. So she, but I don't remember the cookbook. She, <laughs> she was on the planning committee, and yeah. uh, as her name was is listed as Mrs. William Cohen. William, that's right. Yep. And right. and you're listed as the chairman of the advertising committee. You're, I think, in high school yeah. you went by the name James Cohen. Is that right? That's yeah. correct. So James Cohen. That still is my well, name. I just added. Kobe do it. So James Cohen is listed as the chairman of the advertising committee in the cookbook. But you don't remember you don't remember selling any ads. Never. Yeah. I'm not a salesman. (laughs) So I don't know how I could have ever done it. So how do you so do you do you think your do you think your mother just kind of volunteered you for for that thing or I'm sure that's true. Yeah. Because you have you have no memory of working on a a cookbook with your with your mom. Not at all. I haven't thought about those years for a long, long time, but I need to begin with a description of those years in Lewiston, Maine in the 1950s that you're asking me about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Because Lewiston, Maine was, you know, a mill town. Mm -hmm. At the time I lived there, Lewiston was very heavily populated with French Canadian Catholics who made up the workers in the mm-hmm. mills. A lot of them still didn't even speak English. Mm-hmm. Now, my high school was at the border of Bates College, but when they built my high school, they didn't want to spend the money, so they did not put in an, an auditorium. Mm-hmm. And I always felt that, that, even growing up, that Lewiston was a very sterile environment, very uncultured. Mm-hmm in school i was a top student Mm -hmm. and and i ended up speaking at the graduation so i really didn't mingle all that much socially i don't think even though 
I did have a lot of friends. As a matter of fact, this last weekend, a lot of my high school classmates, for some reason, started emailing again uh-huh. each other. Got a whole bunch of emails from classmates, some of which whom I haven't had contact with since high school. Had you reached out to them, or they just reached out to you out of the blue? No, it was just out of the blue. Wow. Were, were any of those friends um, in, in the band with you? The band was not a significant part of my life, because... <laughs> I, I was in the marching band, but yeah. I was also in the concert band, but I played bassoon in the concert band. Uh-huh. I also played the piano. Uh-huh. I, we, at one concert, I was the piano soloist for the American in Paris, the Gershwin oh, thing wow. piece. Yeah. But I, the marching band, I don't know why I was in the marching band, except unless it was just to avoid having a physical education because I did not, anybody who was in the band did not have to have go to gym. I don't even know where the gym might have been because we, I don't, we didn't have an auditorium, so I don't know if we had a gym. Now, your mom also was involved in another community cookbook that we were looking at, which was for the that, temple, that the Beth Jacob. I have, I have that cookbook and I used to use it. You you have, the sisterhood. yeah, the sisterhood cookbook from Beth Jacob. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Because your mom contributed a number of recipes to that cookbook as well. She was the editor. Oh, she was she, the editor. She put that book. Uh-huh. Yeah. She put out two, two of those cookbooks. Uh-huh. So was volunteering for fundraising projects something that she did a lot of? Or do you think cookbooks was something she was interested in? She cooked. Mm-hmm. As, as a matter of fact, you reminded me that because in the 1950s, I also was born Ritzford and she was the caterer. For two parties that she, they had a party for adults at the house Mm -hmm. and a party for the kids in the synagogue. And she did all the, she did all the cooking for, I mean, she puts out, she used to put out banquets. So she catered a lot of stuff. She catered when I was, when I was working in Maine after law school, I had a party at the house I was renting in Augusta because I was working for the state. And she catered that party for me for all the the staff of the attorney general's office. Uh-huh. I had I decided to have a party, and uh, she made all the food for it. It was it was very wow. That's amazing. Interesting. You mentioned to me that when you left Maine, part of it was you came out as a gay man. Is that correct? Was that before or after you left Maine? Well, that's that's part, that's why I left Maine. Yeah, this was the nineteen. This is the sixties. Now, mm. after graduating from law school, I realized I was gay, mm. and so the whole time that I was working for the state of Maine, I was in the closet mm-hmm. and fearful of getting found out. Mm. So that's why I left Maine. And so you left Maine to go to New York in part because you were. I wanted to live my life as me. Yeah. I learned to live my life freely. Mm. Yeah. With everybody I met. And this was still in the 70s, so it was before everything changed. Right. When, how did your parents handle My parents never, nothing. They never knew anything about my life. Oh, they didn't? You never came out to your parents? No. Nope. Mm-hmm. Just my sisters. Mm-hmm. My father, I don't think he understood anything about it. I had no idea what he thought about yeah. it. But he was, you know, he was a musician before he became a lawyer. And he was in, you know, he played in a band. I don't know what kind of life. This was about twenties mm-hmm. or thirties, nineteen twenties. Yeah. So your so your dad was a musician too. Yeah, yeah. It was his saxophone that I played. Oh wow! 
My sister played a horn also, uh-huh. but it belonged to the school. She never owned it. Yeah. yeah. So she never played it afterwards. Yeah. It was just during school, yeah. for the school. Maybe that's why your mom was involved in the booster cookbook, because that's what they were raising money for, was to buy instruments so that the kids would have instruments. I see. That's possible. Yeah, because that's what the the band boosters, you know, they were raising money so that there could be instruments and uniforms and the kids could travel to competitions. Did you ever travel to any? Do you remember ever traveling? I don't remember any competitions. No, No, no. I never traveled anywhere no but what about for football games if you were in the marching band do you remember doing that i don't i don't remember ever going anywhere i don't know yeah (laughs) you've really blocked out the band memories well kobe this has been really fun talking to you it's really fun and thank you for being here today you're welcome my pleasure and now a word from our sponsor the main bicentennial community cookbook that brings Mainers together, it's the flavors of our great state. The Maine Bicentennial Community Cookbook celebrates Maine's rich culinary traditions, old and new, exploring indigenous foodways, hearty Yankee cuisine, community cookbook classics, and favorite dishes of new Mainers. This collection of more than 200 recipes spans kitchens across the state and includes heartwarming stories and dishes from both prominent and everyday Mainers. The book is beautifully illustrated with family photos, handwritten recipe cards, and historic community cookbook covers. This lovely testament to home cooking and the community cookbook tradition in Maine reminds us how the food we cook connects us to the people and places we love. It will surely become a treasured keepsake for all who love to cook and eat. Working with food security advocates within the state, $2 from every book sold supports organizations fighting hunger in Maine. To date, more than $14,000 has been raised and distributed to support the fight to end hunger. For more information or to order your copy, visit Maine200Cookbook.com. And now, back to our podcast. Welcome back, everyone. So as I mentioned earlier, I made Marion Cohen's tongue with raisin sauce recipe. This is a recipe that, well, I thought it was the same as my grandmother's recipe. My grandmother made more of a sweet and sour tongue with raisin sauce, but for every Jewish holiday, we had tongue with raisin sauce. And so I I wanted to make this both to honor our special guest today, but to also to honor my traditions of eating tongue. And we just happened to have a cow tongue in the freezer. I won't say how long it had been in there. I can say that it was when we divvied up meat at Rabelais oh, that's long right. ago. <laughs> so yeah, that, it, it is older than two of our children. Yeah, that was <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, that's I think that's where that tongue came from. It's, it's just been in a corner of the chest freezer for, for... 13 years. <laughs> and it was delicious. It's like it's like eating that woolly mammoth they dug up in Siberia. Or That's exactly the yeah. joke that we made at the dinner table. About the woolly mammoth? Yeah. <laughs> yes. You know, it just goes to show you that those eat by dates can be misleading. But, you know, I think the thing that was most daunting was the peeling because you got to boil and peel the tongue. And our daughters were pretty freaked out by the tongue, although they did. I think they all did touch it because it was very 
rough before the peeling. They went and had touched it. And I boiled it. I peeled it. I made the recipe. And uh, it wasn't my grandmother's recipe. It's a different... The sauce was very similar. We have a recipe in the Maine Bicentennial Community Cookbook that's um, like a mock rabbit tongue with raisin sauce recipe. It's more like a... It's sort of a, almost like an Italian... Was, yeah, it's the Italian mock rabbit. It's a chicken cooked like rabbit, but with, with tomato sauce, raisin. It has yeah. olives. This olives. didn't have the, olives, no, did it? No, it didn't have olives, no. But it was the same. Yeah. It was a very similar flavor profile. And uh, yeah. I thought it was great. Uh, Sadie, uh, our youngest, ate the tongue. She wasn't crazy about the sauce, but she loved the tongue. So I at least I got one of the girls. To and, well, tongue. and I thought it was really good. Yeah. I mean... You have eaten tongue as long as I've known you. Literally on our first date, Carl had a tongue sandwich. And I have always tried a bite and soldiered on, but I actually, it was really good. I had a few slices of the tongue. It was nicely done. So if anyone out there wants to, you know, try uh, the tongue of the raisin sauce, the recipe is on the website, communitycookbook.com. But you had to find your own instructions for peeling it, right? I did. Yeah. uh, Yeah, I did have to. Presumed knowledge. Uh, yes, it presumed knowledge that you know how to boil and peel a tongue, but no, it is not hard. It's basically just <laughs> boiling and then it peels pretty easily. So don't be intimidated by peeling a tongue if you want to try this recipe. Don, what did you cook? I cooked two things and um, I found something interesting about each. I'm trying to think of which one I really want to start with. I'll start with the one that was tastier in the end. It's a yellow pea soup Canadian style. And that was supplied by Mrs. Rachel Poulain. And it's very simple. It was a pound of spare ribs, a cup of yellow dried peas, one medium onion, and some pepper. It's basically a pea soup. The thing I found that I stumbled on at first was this, this idea of using this like completely unseasoned piece of the spare ribs. And I just felt like it was just a a real lost opportunity to add flavor, but I wanted to just go with the recipe as written. I I always like to give things one shot and then play with it later if I, if I think it needs something. But what I liked is that in the end, it had this really, you know, strong, deep, lovely flavors from the dried peas and, and the onion. And the, the pork was sort of just enough fat and whatnot to hold the thing together. Um, I also think that this was a very traditional recipe amongst so many other recipes in the book that were using cans and other sorts of modern Mm. convenience foods. Yeah, right. I made up for it with the, the convenience food of the second dish, which was a real mystery and remains a mystery, but it led me on a great rabbit hole, which I I don't think has anything really to do with the book, but uh, it's called Crab Meat Ping Chow by Dorothy Ford. And I, I, yeah, so... I immediately wanted to see how this would taste because it was kind of an odd-looking recipe at first. And I also wanted to find out something about Ping Chow. And I, of course, I, I'm aware that spellings and whatnot are going to be odd. But I wanted to see, like, what were they trying to imitate or reproduce here? But first, I made this. It's a cup of cooked rice, a can of picked over crab meat, a half a jar of cream, one pint. And I thought that was interesting because that's hearkening back to cream coming directly from your local dairy farm in a jar. You know, that's, we don't think of cream coming in jars anymore. And uh, butter the size of a walnut. There's another nice old, old descriptive thing. Season to taste. And, And here's where there's no real cooking. Place in a double boiler and heat. Lastly, add one can of undiluted tomato soup. 
um, serve on crackers or toast. So I made this. There were a couple little surprises along the way. One of the surprises was that I thought it was just going to turn into something pink. And mm. because the tomato soup was added at the very end, it kind of stayed white with sort of this flecks of red throughout it, which I thought was actually kind of cool looking. I didn't feel like there was near enough crab flavor in it for me to really care about this. I could imagine doing it with much, much less <laughs> cream, much more crab meat, and and to season the crab meat and use, you know, all sorts of other stuff. And it's basically a dip, but it seemed like but it was... you said there's rice in it? Yeah, it's a cooked rice. You're just... You're there's cooked rice cooked in rice. a dip. Yep, in well, a dip. That is weird. And so I went looking for recipes for something called or near to Ping Chow, and mm -hmm. I found nothing. I found a great number of cookbook authors named Ping Chow, uh, but mostly modern <laughs> folks, so this wasn't from the right era. I did find, and this was the real rabbit hole, and it was a lot of fun, that there was this really marvelous man named Ping Chow. His full name was Edward Chewy Ping Chow, who passed away just in 2011, but lived almost a century and was born in, he was Cantonese, born in China. And he uh, came to the States when he was quite young. He married a woman who became known as Ruby Chow. She then had the, like the most famous Chinese restaurant in Seattle for, for many, many years, starting in the 1930s. And I just couldn't possibly think of any reason that somebody would know about this restaurant in Seattle. It was very famous, and and this the you know the like all the members of the family went on to marvelous things and were were real contributors to the community. And there's one really crazy fun little fact, which is that Ruby Chow's nephew was Bruce Lee, and when Bruce Lee came to live with them, wow, when he was a kid, before he had done any professional martial arts stuff he lived in their home and he worked in the restaurant for them so it, it led me on a fascinating little story it has really nothing wow. to do with the book but you know there was nothing i could find about <laughs> peng chow as a dish so i was uh, i was stumped wow wow so you found somehow, bruce lee which is yeah, even more interesting we, somehow we have connected <laughs> a banned cookbook from lewiston maine to bruce lee yeah, that just is, that's just, pretty awesome. You know, it's a game of telephone played on a really poor two G phone, but yeah. um, but it but it but it it, it does show you that the researcher or just like investigating these books just it, it always leads you to interesting yeah. new little things. Whether oh, you can so fun. make the real connection or not, this book was a lot of fun. Yep, I wouldn't make crab meat ping chow again. <laughs> but it was worth making because of the the story it led me to. Yeah, yeah that's wild. Wow. Well, I made the upsy daisy peach cake, which was amazing. Yeah. It was the it was first great. thing I have. It's the first thing I've made from one of these community cookbooks that turned out, I think, the way it was supposed to. And mm -hmm. I think that's probably because it was written for someone using a, you know, a standard oven. There's, there's a heat to 350 kind of recipe, but it was great. It was a peach and cherry upside down cake. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, it was beautiful. Yeah. It it was a classic. I'm a sucker for an upside down dessert. So it was beautiful. It called for Crisco, which I don't normally use in a batter, but it actually had a lovely texture. And it was a one bowl dump cake. So it, it gave you the number of strokes you're supposed to beat it, you know, with each addition. And it turned out lovely. The kids loved it. It was great. Yeah. So success. Yeah. <laughs> no Bruce Lee, though. Yeah. 
right. Well, I think we've reached the end of another episode of Cooking is Community, the Community Cookbook Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today, and a special thanks to Kobe Cohen for sharing his experiences growing up in Lewiston. The music that we're going out on today is main composer Robert Brown Hall's Vini Vidi Vici March, a longtime favorite of main marching bands, performed by the United States Air Force Band. Make sure to visit us on the web at communitycookbook.com and follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Community Cookbook Podcast. We've posted the recipes from today's episode and lots of photos from today's book, The Lewiston Band Booster Club Cookbook. In a couple of days, we'll be posting the recipes we'll be cooking from our next cookbook, Far Away and Down East, Recipes from the Maine Refugee Community, compiled in 1989 by the Refugee Resettlement Program in Portland, Maine. If you have questions or comments about any of the cookbooks we're discussing or about community cookbooks in general, you can email them to us at podcast at communitycookbook.com. You can also leave us a voicemail. We'd love to hear from you. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe, rate, or leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you've published a community cookbook or are working on one now, send us an email or leave us a voicemail telling us your name, where you're from, the name of the cookbook, and the community and charitable cause it supports. We'd love to showcase your efforts. We'll see you in two weeks, and thank Thank you you for for being part of our community. community.